This is an SM Media production. Folks, and welcome to episode five of Chronicle the Rangers Journey. I'm Scott McPike. It's a pleasure to be your host as always. This week's episode, we are going to take a look at 95 to 98, marching towards history. What happened when Rangers came within touching distance of the ultimate goal in Scottish football? Dominance was, was the word of the period. Rangers were on their way. This, they'd finished, they'd won the seventh league championship in a row. Heading towards that magical number nine and also 10 after that. But it now begins to get real that this is a possibility. To join me on this part of the journey is Stephen Harrigan. Stephen, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you onto the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Nope, thank you very much for the invite. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. We obviously have we went through this from 1978 when when the kind of need for a the need for a hero was was immediate and we see we obviously went through that and what happens there. Murray's there. Murray's on board. He's he's now got firmly got his feet in the the door as the new China chairman and the dynamic owner. Last week we spoke about the kind of culture that Murray had set in the, the background of obviously the way he dealt with the media. We'll touch on that a wee bit as well, kind of follow up on what we spoke about last week. But 95, the summer of 1995, it's it's all about one thing, isn't it? We'll touch on Europe, we'll touch on that whole kind of wanting to prove yourself at that high level, but this is when the fans really think this is a this nine is, is the be-all and end-all. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think there's been, obviously, since five years ago, I think murmurs um, had gathered. I think the, the challenge wasn't there out with um, ourselves in Aberdeen, and Aberdeen had kind of feeded by this point, so... I think with every passing season, it was becoming more and more the reality. Um, and by the time you get past six, it, it really starts to gather a lot of pace. It gathers a lot of focus. I think it gathers a lot of the players' focus and minds at this point as well. And heading it at this point, <clears throat> all roads certainly point to achieving the nine as a bare minimum. Um, because there doesn't seem to be, there's nobody on the horizon that can come and stop us at this stage. And, and that's kind of where things were at. That's where it, my mindset was at as a fan. And I think the majority of the fan base would have been the same. It was just a case of keeping the status quo up. We were almost untouchable at home, but we would like to see um, some obviously improved performances on the European stage at this point. Yeah. Europe will touch on in a few minutes, but this that summer, there's only one story to touch on. The, the latest intent by a signing is obviously the big one here. The, the story's famous of obviously Paul Gascoigne, how he ends up joining Rangers, but as a fan in 1995, the thought of Paul Gascoigne arriving at Ibrooks, what's, what's going through your head that summer? That's a massive signing. It's one of the biggest signings in Scottish football history. That's the first thing that went through my head is get myself to the barbers, get my <laughs> hair dyed blonde, get it cut, get up to Ibrooks and see him being paraded in that, you know, Richard Goss number four strip. Um, yeah, I, I was part of all that kind of um, groundswell and excitement, and, and it was it was unbelievable. Gaza was, I mean, 
anybody that I'm trying to think how you put it in perspective, it's like Beckham before Beckham. Yeah. Um, because yeah. he he was a, a megastar, you know, obviously from Italian Nightney. Then he he done obviously really well at Tottenham, goes to Italy, but our diet at that stage with how we you know consumed football was very much through um Paul Gascoigne's eyes. It was very much through um Gazetta d'Italia on a Saturday yep. and Sunday mornings. So everything that we did was based on primarily Italian league has been number one, and Gaza was the main star of that. He was the main why the show was developed, and everything was focused around him. And then to get him as a player, to get him as a personality, everything that went with him for us to have him, um, it was it was special. It really was. Um, I, I remember talking to my grandfather, and he couldn't quite believe it. Um, it was kind of stunning. Um, but I, I was certainly swept up in it. As I said, I went and got my hair dyed, um, and I think everybody I knew. Uh, it was just you couldn't wipe the smile off our faces that summer, and you contrast that way what was going on across the city. So that makes it all the wee bit more sweeter. Yeah, but obviously, I mean, there, there is a double-edged sword to this. That there is that kind of obsession with the domestic success that up until this point, I mean, we see a challenge in '95, '96 from a resurgent Celtic who we'll touch on. But it's it is Europe. There there is this thing of this Champions League is getting to be the kind of big thing. Gascoigne is a signing towards improvement and that. We've seen it last the season before, Bolly and Loudrop, they are proper European signings. This is another big name, big stage signing. Yeah, I think if you look at the transitions and transfers in that summer, clearly Europe uh, is at the forefront of the manager's mind. He brings in somebody like Oleg Solenko, yes. who had played in the Champions League. He obviously had won the Golden Boot at the 94 World Cup, but everybody knows that, but he had played in the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Peter Van Vossen, he played for Holland at major tournaments. He had played in the Champions League, he'd won it with Ajax, so mm-hmm. he comes with experience. Eric Bo Anderson had scored goals in the Champions League as well. So they kind of players are bought, not just for the Scottish game, but primarily with a focus on, on looking at the European level and improving what was becoming a concerning um, run of results at that point. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that, as I said at the top, that the focus was very much on the domestic scene and recapturing that title, but we kind of felt as if we could do it with a right shot because there wasn't that challenge. And the thing, the caveat was, well, let's go and make it a, a good attempt in Europe. Um, and I think with the players that are coming in, that's really what we're looking at. We're looking to expand our horizons a wee bit. Uh, and a lot of them don't work out for a number of reasons, but that's where that summer was based in. The summer before, the Loudrop and Bolly was focused on that. And now we're trying to take it to the next level and improve it a wee bit further. Yeah, league campaign starts brilliant in 95-96, 10 wins from the first 12 league games, but it's it's pretty steady so far. Gaza gets his gets two goals in the kind of first four or five games. He, he begins to find his feet and it does look like it's just going to be a march towards eight. It does. And I think, you know, four or five games in, um, we go to Parkhead when Alec Cleland scores. Yeah. And then Gaza gets that goal and, you know, the celebration away. Um, to the jungle and, and running the light, it, it kind of just feels it. It's there. Um, it's going to just take off, and it does. I mean, when you look at overall the amount of wins um, we have that season, it, it's a very, very good season domestically. But as I said, it's one that's to be very much expected. The challenge starts to come from all areas, like Hearts and things like that. But you look at the squad that we've got there, and uh, you know we can cope with injuries. Has always been a factor in the previous seasons. Injuries um, hurt us in terms of performances, in terms of um, getting to high points at some stages, um, but now we've got the reinforcements and uh, it's just all, all a bit too easy at this point. Um, I don't think there's any, any other question that we're going to win the league, and especially with Cascoon running the show. But the fascinating thing with that is that 
that 2-0 win over Celtic in the first Old Firm game, that Celtic's only defeat that season. Was there, a, was there a feeling, I know you've said obviously Rangers, there still was the feeling Rangers were clear, but was there a feeling that Celtic were getting their act together under Burns at that point? I think there was by the end of the season. I'm not sure, you know, <coughs> Tommy, Tommy Burns for all he'd been a Celtic hero up until that point, he'd done okay at Kamarika Zamaja, mm-hmm. but I don't think we expected it to change overnight off the Fergus mechanic come in there. Um, there was a change in direction at all, all board level um, and, and, you know, they were allowed to spend a wee bit. By the end of the season, I think going into next year, we certainly knew that Celtic would be the challengers. Well, up until that point, we hadn't really seen or heard of it. And look, in the bigger games, we still managed to deal with them very easily. That Celtic team's problem was always draws. Um, yeah. Um, and that, that 11 draws in the season, yeah. 11 yeah, draws. That was always their undoing. So you always felt that if it came down to head-to-head or a big game, we could go and get the, the business done and, and that was pretty much the case throughout you know the whole nine in a row year Walter Smith always tended to get it done in the games that mattered uh, and I think by that point we had momentum we had the belief um, yeah you thought there'd be a challenge and I think the following season you thought there'd be a far greater challenge but we, we were still if we wanted to put a foot in the gas I, I think everybody thought we could just do that no bother yeah the Champions League qualification was secured for the first time since 93 I won now two-leg one over an office's Famagusta. Going into a draw with Juventus, who under Michelo Lippi are just, they're getting to that stage where they're becoming the top team in the, the continent. Borussia Dortmund, we know what they do two years later, and Stoya Bucharest. Yes, there's big teams in that group, but there's also the, the feeling of Rangers are in this group stage now. It's time to make a mark. Yeah, uh, as I said before, that's exactly where we are. And we had this kind of I was going to say, complacency had set in a wee bit as well because we played Stoy Bugaris in the pre-season tournament at Ibrooks. Yep. Um, Gaza scored his first goal that day. It was a lovely day. I think it was a 3-4-0 win or something like that. But it was a very comfortable victory. And when we were drawn against them in the Champions League, we very much expected it to be a walk in the park. And the first game that we lose is obviously a waste because it's a very late goal. I think it's the deflected goal 1-0. Um, it might even be Daniel Poudin that scored it for him. I think it was, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But if you look at how we set up for that game, we set up very defensively, very much compact. And then I think that result, that last couple of minutes, seems to change Walter's approach and how we approach the next couple of games. Um, I mean, the, the Dortmund at home, it's one of the games that's unlucky. Um, yeah, two, two very each. unlucky. We, we had a lot of chances as well. We kind of ran them and then we went to tune in with a wee bit of belief. But when you look at that... The Juventus game and you know the two of them. I was going to say that the home ones are a bit as bad as the first one. Um, you know the away game were two 0 down, were three three 0 down within twenty three minutes gone. Um, it's just not a very good performance at all. The, the goals that we lost and goals that we continued to lose at Europe, they were becoming very easy to predict. We would really give the ball away very cheaply and then we get punished. And that was the case time and time again. We're also playing ridiculous tactics on occasion. You know, uh, the home game against Juventus, we can't uh, try to kind of play Richard Goff as a, a kind of sweeper role. We yeah. try to check him back a wee bit. And these things don't really work. I mean, we, we didn't have any real pace. We still played with a very high line. Um, our games, we were shoehorning players into different positions and different formations. We were still hampered by, obviously, um, the restriction on foreigners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a massive thing because it meant that we had to bring in lesser players to play in these games quite often. Yeah. And quite often the following season, it'd be somebody like Craig Moore as well. Greg Shields, players like that would play a lot of Champions League games and they wouldn't play at the domestic level. Um, so so it, was, it was very difficult. But the Dortmund games, I mean, 
everybody talks about Barcelona under Pep and how they pressed when, uh, sorry, Juventus, when they, Juventus gave me eyebrows. I mean, anybody who was there that night will know. And, and if you've done you know, football coaching for years after it, every coach would, would harper on about this Juventus team because they hunted in packs. And because you were so careless on the ball, um, it was an absolute dream, you know. I mean, to yeah. lose two goals in the final what, minute or two minutes of the game <coughs> was just, it's indicative of how we were in the Champions League at that point. I mean, the last one, Richard Goff, or second, like third one, I think, uh, Richard Goff tries to stop it with his hand in the line and then I think decides at the last minute that there's not much point and, and pulls it back a wee bit. But it was a shambles. We were a shambles defensively and it was becoming a blight on reputation because obviously after 92 93, we felt we had a real chance. I think the chance was gone then. As supporters, we didn't realise it at that point, but the reality now is it really starting to bite home because you look at how that group kind of panned out. The, the kind of last couple of games, I, I won each trolley star because Gaza gets that very much brilliant individual goal. Yeah. And then the last two each away at Dortmund, where the game's done and dusted. It's, you know, freezing cold conditions and there's nothing much to play for apart from pride for ourselves. Um, but it, it's just a disappointing performance. Um, all round for, for the group stages and it was something you know getting by Famagusta to begin with um, getting that now now away there was celebrated I mean, we really did think we could use that as a, a stepping stone we expected as I said to really thought story progress both both games and it didn't happen and the two games with Dortmund the two middle games um, they were just absolute doings I mean from Del Piero's free kick and, and the Del Alpi um, to, to some of the defending that we, we, like we say, we played better rivals, but we were, we were 4-1 four, four down. That's how we finished the game. So by that point, it was clear that Europe was becoming a real problem and we didn't have the answers. We, we just didn't have any solutions for them at that stage. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And I think it just intensifies the season after. But the 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 only kind of advantage to the going out of Europe was this massive thing of, the, of getting that record of nine. And it, it goes on further this season, obviously, the... A brilliant run from that kind of a three-three draw with Celtic, obviously famous for the the goal that never was. But as you say, there is that thing of they still Rangers have still got the upper hand on Celtic. It's even Celtic. Celtic are improving absolutely. They improve further the season after, but Rangers still have Celtic's number, and that's that's key for this season. I would say again. Yeah, I mean, I think it's as much at this point psychological as anything else. Celtic haven't found a way to beat us. I think we are very much in their heads at this stage and we've got that mental toughness when it comes. The, the mental toughness that's lacking in European games, that ability to, to go away from home, give up possession, be comfortable with it, be compact and then be patient is what we have when we go to places like Parkhead. But we don't possess it in the European stage and that's because of the success that we've had in the previous five to, to seven years. That's been built up. That's embodied in the coaching staff. And at this point, this is a very new Celtic team. It's a Celtic team that have been out the picture um, in terms of challenging really at the top of the table for quite a number of years. So they're having to learn it. And we've very much got that. And, and I think it's, you see it over the next couple of seasons as well. It becomes mental warfare as much as yes. um, just talent on the pitch. And it comes down to nerves. It comes down to big players, as it always does. But it's a mental game, and we certainly have the upper hand in that. And that's that's really what carries us through, um, you know. And the hit edge with Celtic, even even you know, three four years in the distance in that as well. Yeah, November saw the departure of Mark Cately, who obviously a legendary figure in the the nine and a row era. He goes to Queens Park Rangers, a one point five million pound move. It's the largest paid 
paid fee for a 34-year-old at this time. I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll touch on this in two stages. All, the first thing is, what was Mark Haley's legacy to Rangers in that team? And secondly, was there an opinion that he was going to be a big miss? And would you rather he maybe stayed on for that to kind of get the get over the line kind of thing? Yeah, but I think Mark Haley's legacy, first and foremost, was he was this team. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the Walter Smiths, he was a spearhead. Once Alan McCoy broke his leg in, in Portugal for, on Scotland, Jay, he was the one that really carried us through in a, a large number of games. He was, he was a pivotal point of that attack. He had absolutely everything. He had pace, power, he terrified defenders, and he was a big game player. But the reality is by this stage, he spent about a season or two just picking up niggling injuries, mm-hmm. and they seem to accumulate, accumulate. And I think 1.5 million, as you say, at his age, it's an offer we really couldn't turn down. And I think for him, he, he was wanting maybe one last chance to go back down south and, and get a prove himself. Um, he'd been England's number nine at the 86 World Cup. He'd never really got an look in under Graham Taylor, even when he had great success at us. And I, I do think there was something always chapping at his head that, you know, I, I want to go back down there and show that I can still do it. The reality was, um, you know, the injuries had taken a toll, especially with his, his pace. Uh, and that electric, you know, the first five yards were no longer there. He's still yeah. very much a threat early. Um, very much a dominant player, a very physical player, but you know at that point we, we were we were trying something different. We were going for more mobile strikers. Um, we, so I think the frustration of not playing and then the lure of going back to his house and, and going down to London at that point was something that probably just won him over and a million and a half fee. I think won won the club over as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with a great legacy in Rangers Football Club, but. The match for this eighth title, it's, there's a couple of results, a 3-0 home defeat to Hearts and a 2-0 away defeat to Hearts. I mean, they're, they're big losses, but Rangers do get do get going. I mean, there's some big wins in there. You think of that 4-2-1 over Wraith, the 3-2 home one over Motherwell, McCoy's for that last-minute penalty. It's shaped up to that Aberdeen game where, I mean, and I think it's fair to say this is the Best, one of the best performances by an individual player in an Ibrox tough. Paul Gascoigne just runs that game. It's an, it's an unbelievable performance from start to finish. It is. It's one of the things that we, when you have a player, a, a maverick like Gascoigne in your team and Loudrop as well, we got by so many times domestically where it was we weren't playing our best football. We maybe conceded a sloppy goal. We weren't the best at defending but you have that individual brilliance that builds you out, and, and that was the case. There was no better example of it than that day, um, because the first half, I think the game itself, it wasn't a great spectacle, um, and then Gascoigne just decides, you know, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to just do what I do, um, and his, his goals, how he takes the goals, is yeah. phenomenal. The, the last goal, you know, the last sorry, last goal from open play, when he just runs um, and just kills, I think it's Derek Stillian goals, um, that's a sight that will it'll be in my head for, I think, until he gets a die because he just picks up and he keeps saying, where's he going to pass it? Who's going to play through? Because he had a great through ball. But his game, he was always about the elbows. For all his ability, Gascoigne was always about the determination. It's why he gets so many red cards as well because he gets so frustrated that people, I think, try to pull him back. People stop him in his runs. But once he get going, and it's a wee bit reminiscent of that goal he got against Tony Bucharest. There was not well. It's a different end of the pitch. Um, but it's that just, if you don't stop him, 
He's running at pace, he's running at power, and he's got the composure to pick the finish. And then, of course, there was nobody else that was going to take the penalty, even if um, Nicholas did fancy it. It was certainly going to be um, Gascoigne. He, he did ask nicely after all for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't think you could knock him for, for wanting his hat trick for that performance. But it's, as you say, it's one of those, that, that's what he's that was what he was brought in to do. He was that maverick, as you say, him and Loudrup. Gaza obviously was the the one I think the I mean the famous thing of Gaza's here for 10 in a row that was that was what he was there for he was there to take that club to the next level and get over the line yeah that's what he brought in that's what you buy Paul Gascoigne for you buy him for to, to, to secure 10 in a row for the moments of brilliance for, for days like that Sunday against Aberdeen uh, and you buy him for to give you a bit of credit and, and hopefully compete in Europe that's why he came to the club as well Let's make no bones about it. He, he wanted to win things. Um, he played in big games before, but if you look at it in terms of what he'd won, he hasn't won an awful lot in his career. No. You know, and when he got his his medal for Tottenham Hotspur, he was he was obviously lying in a treatment table. Yeah. So it's not the same. So you know, winning uh, and getting that getting in that habit of winning and winning consistently is something that drives him on. It's, it's something that drives every big player on. Um, and he, I don't think he wanted to retire having been seen as you know, the greatest midfield player that England ever had um, and not have a medal collection. Mm. And he certainly, it worked both ways. And I think when you see the type of deals, that's why they do work. It has to be something out for both parties. Yeah. A, cup, a League Cup double was finalised a couple of weeks later with the infamous 5-1 win over Hearts. The, the Loudrop final, even though Gordon Jury scores a hat-trick, but it's called a Loudrop final for a reason, isn't it? It is. And, you know, it's strange of players. I think they were out for about a week before it. Um, <laughs> and it's one of these games where they probably turned up, a, not in the best frame of mind, but the performance. And, and look, from a Hearts point of view, Hearts, it, it, as you said, they had the Alan Johnson game, they had the Ulrich to Dinkastle. Jim Jeffries' teams are always, and always will be, um, as we discussed this, um, either a pain in the ass. They, they yeah. were physical, they had good players, they had young players, they had hungry players with a lot of pace, um, and they had a lot of things to prove um, to themselves. So they were very good and well-structured teams. But, you know, when you get the mistake like Gilles Rousset makes as well, I think you just you know, heads go down and heads drop. And when you get somebody like Lydrop, you talked about the individual brilliance of Gascoigne Eller and that Aberdeen game. This is Lydrop doing it. This is his turn. Um, and when he's at his best, it's very hard to stop because he's got that. He's a, you know, he's six foot two. He's got that very close control. He draws players in uh, very well. He can play either side. And we just gave him that free roll. And again, what didn't work for us in Europe, giving Lydrop a free roll and asking him just to pop up in different places, certainly worked for us um, domestically. And it worked on this day because it just meant he occupied space and he was excellent at finding it. Um, and yeah, these days are always going to come around when you when you have you know world-class talent on your side. Yeah, absolutely. But we'll switch gears a wee bit to talking about things off the park just for uh, the time being. We mentioned last week about the way David Murray would hold court with the media. Just It was... It was the circular mom culture, it, is, it was true. It, it, that was what was going on. But the thing with the thing we hear is, is that Murray wanted that. Murray wanted Rangers to be big in Europe. And I think he did He did put that on hold until obviously 98. Is it fair to say that Murray kind of did put that, you know, although we, can, we will criticise Murray, Murray later on for not really getting the fans ambitions and hopes but here it's it's focus on that domestic front as it's abandon all the plans you've got and put them in the back burner for a couple of years until this this 10 thing is done 
Look, I think the realisation by David Murray's smart enough to realise this, but I think the realisation probably by Walter Smith as well at this point yeah. is very much, if you don't win it, you always be the team that didn't win it, yes. as opposed to the team that won six, seven, eight, whatever it may be, whatever you don't get if you don't reach that. That was nine was always a magic number. If, if we didn't reach it, then it would always be held against you. This was the team that didn't achieve the nine, rather than as I say, the team that achieved whatever um, you know landmark they got to. And when that takes hold, and when that grips, you don't want to be the manager that's in charge when that's the team. You don't want to be the chairman which is in charge when that's the team. So you're doing everything you can in your power to secure that. And I think that's where the focus shifted. I think the realisation on the European stage, where we probably couldn't compete transfer budget-wise at that top level for the really creme de la creme of players. That, that, that had long gone, that had long gone, you know, some five, six years ago at the very least. Um, and I think the realisation was now focused on that because A, it kept the fans coming in happy. And you've got to remember at this point, Champions League, you know, the attendances of Champions League are probably looking at about 30, 35,000. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ibrox, because the pricing structure that David Murray had introduced was very unpopular. It wasn't like now it's automatic renewals, everybody goes and takes it up. So the, the demand and appetite wasn't there. Well, we certainly felt at that point as a fan base that you were going to get a bit of a scudding. Um, mm-hmm. And the money that was being asked was seen to be a wee bit obscene. So a lot of people just didn't pay it. So the focus was more on domestic wise. It's, it's not the quite. The brand that the Champions League is now is very important in Europe. Was always classed as very important, yeah. but I think that's where that's where their focus shifts because they they're they're now ruling by a wee bit of fear, and it's has to. There, there must have been enormous pressure on the group of players, you know, pressure on the manager. Although the manager never showed it, and David Murray must have been the one at the top. And you can imagine some of the, the conversations privately they would have been on about making sure that that nine was secured, um, you know, no matter what. Mm-hmm. 96, 97 in the, the summer, Rangers, it's not a splurge like it, will, that it was the season before or the season after. Two careful signings, in my opinion, George Alberts from Hamburg for four million, Joachim Bjotland from Vicenza for 2.2 million, Rosenthal would arrive later on in the in December for three and a half. There is big spending, but it's it's careful. It's Let's get the two pieces that we need just to kind of make this a proper team and go for this big title. Yeah, I mean, I think Rosenthal was brought in as a potential Alan McCoy's replacement. And yeah, a, absolutely. Line. I think that's um, fair. The kind of reputation that he carried when he arrived was seismic. He was seen very much, you know, three and a half million from um, University of Catalonia. It, it was seen as a massive coup that we managed to secure him. Mm-hmm. He scored and then obviously get injured and the rest is history. But yeah. I, I think when he signed, there was a lot of fanfare about it. Alberts was somebody we didn't know an awful lot about. We told you, I think he'd been capped once by the German national team. But we soon found out, I think it was a game away to Hibs at Easter Road very early on the season where he scores um, one of his trademark shots. And that's what really starts to, to capture imagination. He comes in, he becomes very quickly a fan's favourite because of that ability to mm-hmm. a hit a dead ball and be, um, you know, just shoot from distance. Um, but we didn't know an awful lot about him. Yoki Bjortland, I think we, we did, you know, Sweden had done very well in the 94 World Cup yeah. in America. He was part of that. Um, we knew he was fast. And, and going by the previous seasons, previous seasons, certainly in European games, um, we needed reinforcements at the back. And he came from Syria. So if you're buying a defender from Syria at that point, it's seen as a, as a good bit of business. And for the money that we paid for him, I, I think it was. I think it's a decent outlay from a, from a player at his level. Um, he played in the Champions League, obviously, with Gothenburg and uh, there was some exposure to that against Manchester United in the kind of early 90s. So he, he's the one that we, we knew most about. 
Um, and I think for the fee, it was a good bit of business. Um, but yeah, it's strange to think that that kind of money wasn't deemed as um, a massive transfer no. during the summer. But if it was spent nowadays, it would probably would be, wouldn't it? No, absolutely, yeah. But Champions League's qualification was secured again. It was secured a lot easier than it was the season before. A 10-3 victory over Alania Vladikovaz. I mean, you look at that game, I mean, I think think back now, Rangers winning a Champions League qualifier 7-2 away from home. It's, it's quite remarkable when you think about it. Yeah, I've still got it in DHS. <laughs> um, first leg, I was, you know, famous for the Golden Patriots, kind of swollen shirts there. Yeah. Um, but to go and away and beat the Russian champions 7-2 is incredible. And do you know what? It, it's possibly the worst thing that happened to us because the belief levels, the expectation levels just went through the roof. I mean, this was unbelievable. Yeah, th- There's no words that could... Th- this was not expected. It seems a very tough, tough time from our previous... You know, we, we struggled against teams like Famagusta by the previous year. We've been put out by also Leske Sofia, you know, very lesser known team so we knew it was going to be a difficult game um the first leg at Ibrox didn't start particularly well but we found a way in it and McKinnis got the equaliser because and Patriots scored and to go away in the leg and, and, and you know watching it and it was always you know if you remember watching away games it was that kind of grainy very, very yeah. much eastern block coverage yeah. um 7-2 McCoy's got his hat trick Lydia got a couple um but I, I don't think I mean as European performances go it's probably one of the best in what was my you know time in charge, and it doesn't get talked about enough because they kind of fade very quickly. But at that point, they were the Russian champions and take nothing away from them. Um, but what it did to it really just created you know a terrible beauty in the sense that we now had the expectations of going and smashing our way through the group, and sadly that wasn't to be the case. Yeah, I mean the group. You you look at the group in paper compared to the season previous. I mean it's. I don't think. I think on paper, I think qualification is not expected, but certainly possible. I mean, Ajax, obviously, they've won it a couple of years before. Auxerre, obviously, they were making their first appearance in the Champions League, but they were obviously, they'd done really well in the French League the season before. Grasshopper Zurich's the big one. They are, they're obviously a big name, but at that point, it's, I mean, budgets it's- don't compare. It's about as favourable group as you can get. Yes. Um, if you got that group nowadays in the Champions League, you would be over the moon. Absolutely. It was, a, it was simply a case in this wasn't a Monaco. This wasn't even a PSG, not even the PSG of today. This was Grasshopper, this was Auxerre, and it was an Ajax side that went the Ajax side a couple of yeah. years ago. A lot, but, of the, yeah. a lot of the Ajax players yeah. have gone. Yeah, they're, they're okay, they're still favourites for that group, but second place takes you through. The first game away at Grasshopper Zurich was an absolute disaster. Yes. They're, of course, managed by Christian Gross at this time. Uh, their players, you know, represented Switzerland at Euro 96, Scotland beat Switzerland at Euro 96. Mm-hmm. So we all expected it to be a very routine game. But it's how we play again. We try to shoot on people in positions. We have Gordon Petrich and, and the likes of Gary Bowen playing on not that mobile. And we get punished. Mm-hmm. We give teams a ball back. And, and that's what happens. The second game at Ibrox against Luxair, it's an awful defender. They're, they're really bad defended by Andy Gore. He tries to come for um, a corner at one point and, and kind of <coughs> the guy heads it in. And yeah, it becomes a bit of a mess. And that leaves us going to, you know, the Amsterdam Arena or, or match day three, where we needed a result, some form of result to kind of stay in it. And that's a really hard task. And at that point, I think, correct to say, the Amsterdam Arena was fairly new. It was seen yeah, as a kind brand of, new. I think that's the first season of it. Yeah, and it was certainly heralded as. The future in stadiums and yeah. it was kind of space age, 
But you look at the side we go with, we go with um, you know, Billy Thompson who played against Juventus the previous year at Ibrox. Again, Andy Gorham's picking up a couple of niggling injuries, so where Theo Snell doesn't go, I think even changes from memory, changes the goalkeeping top at half-time, but not much avail. And the goals we lose are utterly avoidable. Yes. Craig Moore's playing right back. The first one by Danny is a header. He gets kind of done. The second one over Mars really just skins him down the right-hand side. And you're sure having players, you know, Albert's even started up front of the game. We mixed in with Gascoigne. Gascoigne gets sent off a... You know, something really just kicking out. It's just sheer frustration. But the amount of times we give away possession is staggering. And the only time we do have a wee bit of composure uh, is when Ian Durant scores. And that's because he's that kind of midfield player that's cool, calm and collected. When he gets through, he knows where the goal is. He doesn't have to lash at it. But apart from that, um, it wasn't great. And, and by, by then, it's all done and dusted. And then the home game against Dax, we played even, you know, we gave some youngsters like a chance because it was completely right away from us. And that kind of tells you, you talked about, you know, in the last question about where was our focus in terms of domestic v European. We'll go and look at the lineup against for that game against Ajax. Yeah. Um, you, you know, it was, we, we tried some and yeah, you know, it was a one-nil narrow defeat. But if I remember, that was kind of seen as a, a bit of a victory. Um, and that's, that's strange to say, but um, we, we really were now up against it. The, the home game with Grasshopper was a bit of a revenge. The players were very frustrated about the tag that Christian Gross uh, <clears throat> is used to describe us as holidaymakers. So I think that's a wee bit between their teeth. Um, and Alan McCoy hadn't had the greatest goal-scoring record in the actual Champions League. Yeah. And that was really starting to wane him. Um, and that night, you can see it when he, he gets that first goal. I think he gets books are taking his shirt off um, in the celebrations. And it's a great finish. But you, you can see the emotion when he scores because... That's a frustration of the players, somebody who's been there for the whole Champions League run at this point. Um, and getting, I think that might have been his first goal in the Champions League. Um, so that was being held against by that point, and, and then he managed to get a penalty. Uh, and then the last game away to Oxia, um, we don't really do ourselves any favours and defending again, you know, throughout this, and, and especially in Europe. I know Richard Goff, R- Richard Goff was struggling. Um, if he wasn't the leader that he was, then I'm not sure he would have been in the team. He had a lot of injuries. Uh, and a lot of the defending from company play that high line. We didn't play the kind of setup that Walter would play in his second spell where it's yeah, set absolutely. deep. And he learns know. from that. He, do, he, he, learns he does. From that. He does. But at this point, we're far too open. Um, <laughs> and, and once again, in a group, we really should have cruised and second place should have been all but a formality. We get caught out by cunning players. We get caught out by players with more mobility and just really more pace. And, and that's what he does is, uh, once again. Yeah. And the thing, I think the thing as well, the thing that you, I look back from like, kind of this period kind of researching and things is 92-93 and it looks more like a fluke as each season goes on. It's that thing of you get so close and then you just you try and you try and bring in all these players and things like that and you try and get to that level and it's it just doesn't amount to anything and it's it's not for the want of trying. I think that's fair to say. But it's that what's it going to take and how much football's changing round about. Yeah, I mean, I think by this point, Walter Smith must have been, he must have had a few sleepless nights. Yeah. Because he's, he's got the players like Loudrop and Gascoigne, but we're not a complete team. You mm-hmm. know, domestically, let's give the ball to Loudrop, give the ball to Gascoigne and let them work their magic in Europe. Teams say, okay, we're going to take that away. We're going to expose the gap. We had a lot of gaps between middle and front. Mm-hmm. We, we still, for the most of the occasion, went 4 4 2, which left the midfield very heavily exposed. So Paul Gascoigne obviously is not a player that's always going to do the, the dirty work. That wasn't his side of the game. 
So it did, it did leave him exposed in the occasion. And then once you take light drop out, we don't have that creative spark. Gascoigne's already out, and, and you know, in a couple of these games, Gascoigne's frustrations just get the better of him. And that's simply that. It's good players knowing how to play us um, and taking away our threats. And we just really had no responses. And I go back to when, you, when we're hampered <coughs> by the rules that are in place at that point as well, mm-hmm. having to show on some of the players that we are, we, we having to play. I mean, with all due respect, Gary Boland playing against Juventus the year before and then Greg Shields and that playing against Ajax. It's great experience for them. But it's not games they would they would have ever been expected to play on mm-hmm. had had everybody been allowed and been available to play in. That's just the reality of the situation. And our centre half for the, the most of the Champions League campaign in these two seasons um, was Gordon Petrich as well, which you would probably describe him as an old British centre half where mm-hmm. he, he wins everything there in a stopper, but he's not a ball playing centre half. He's not going to go and engage the attackers. And, and we came up got a lot against a lot of smart players, and it really just. Was undoing every season upon season. Mm-hmm. On the domestic front, we'll we'll touch on the league as a whole kind of in a couple of minutes. But that league cup final against Hearts, it's it's one of the craziest games and that you will probably cover in this series. Like Ali McCoy's double gives a gives Rangers a two 0 lead at half time before half time. But Hearts managed to peg it back to two two, and you've got the infamous debacle between Gaza and McCoy that results in Gaza going up and asking for a, a brandy at half time. That is that does happen. That's absolutely true. But it comes out this man possessed and leads Rangers to a four three victory. And it's it shows more about that side's mentality, but it also shows just the the management just to get that get that trophy in the bag. Just win at all costs, just do whatever it is, just to get your get focused in that game and get keep that success going. Yeah, I mean, this is a game, if you watched it back, the Hearts, probably before, you know, Gascoigne takes it over, we really should win. Uh, Hearts, I've got McCann, that's the McCann, game that makes Neil McCann. Yeah, McCann's man of the match. Yes. He's not absolute man of the match in this game. He tears us apart. Um, I think it's David Robertson on that side as well. Mm-hmm. But he absolutely destroys us. Um, he has a great game. But we were talking about earlier when my feeling at that time, I think, you know, the greater support team was, <laughs> When they go and got tough, put your foot in the gas, let individual Browns take over, and that's what happened. Walter Smith was very good at cultivating that and allowing it to, you know, sending guys up for that brandy. He doesn't just go, he gets Walter's permission, and Walter senses that he's a wee bit on nerve, and then when Gascoigne commits and takes over the game in the second half, this is what happens, and this is just our mindset. Well, when things get tough, Gascoigne, McCoy's, big-name players will step up at the biggest moments and get us out of trouble. And to be honest, that's what happened once again. And it's a very pivotal game. Um, it's fantastic drama. Um, but yeah, you know, the famous um argument between Gascoigne and yeah. McCoy's on the pitch as well. It, it makes for good copy, but um the trophy was won and that just seemed like normality. Yeah, I mean if you you look you look though at that that chemistry of that team, I mean you're your two big players, Gaz and McCoy, are having that debacle at halftime. I mean the, the story's clear Smith goes in and Hauls Gascoigne in the by the throat and says, "Sort it out," and they do sort it out. And you see at the end of that game, the, the two happiest guys in that park are the two of them holding the trophy together. I mean, it's it's just that chemistry, isn't it? It's just that once it once it's won, everyone's forgotten about, and that's the that's the brilliance of Walter Smith. What three winners? You know, the, the, that's what this team had. It had winners, um, had players whose careers would at different peaks, had players whose careers would diminish a wee bit. But what it had was that determination, that team of winners, and, and they knew, by this point, they knew how to win and knew how to get games over the line. 
and they knew it was needed. And if it was a kick up the ass, a fight, whatever. But once the job was done, it was all going back to, I mean, the, the elements of the group, they, everybody criticises the drinking and the ethos that went on. I'm going to say that went on at the vast majority of clubs back then. Absolutely. Didn't, yeah. didn't mean it was right, but that's the way it did. And the only way, um, but the, the togetherness, the, that was a band of brothers, and, and you don't see that lightly, but these were guys who lived social lives together. They, mm. you know, hung out whenever they could together, and I'm sure they got on each other's nerves. If you've ever been around somebody for a long period of time, Aye. that's what happens, but they're doing it because they want to win. They're doing it for the best interests of the club, uh, and they always managed, you know, certainly at this point, to get the correct result, to get the trophy, and, and they don't hold any grudges. It's done and dusty. And I think you've seen that a lot with Walter Smith's management throughout this. I mean, he had tried to shake it up a wee bit. He's got rid of Mark Hayley, the big personality. He let him <coughs> in, he obviously transfer listed Andy Gorham previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sent Ian Durant or Monte um, Everton. So he's not afraid to shake it up, but he's also not afraid to take them back in. He knows how to re-embrace them and reintegrate them into the group. Um, and the players themselves have reactions and strong reactions to that. They, they, they're not the type of players who... Or if they get put in the transfer list, or if they get sent out on loan, which you know at that point it looked as if Ian Durant was supposed to requirements and wouldn't be coming back, but he was certainly seen as the most likely to stay down there. Mm-hmm. Then they don't curl up, they don't not relish the challenge, and this is what happens in this type of game. It's the players that that personality is shining through that that determination of how we win, but the need and will to win as well. Mm-hmm. And the league, but coming up to the the new year, old from. Rangers are 11 points clear. They've won the first two derbies in victory and the third would, would halt Celtic's run to try and stop the nine. That, those two those two victories, obviously the first one, the 2-0 win, Gaza and Goff with the goals, and then that away game at Parkhead where Loudrup scores that goal there. That whole season, I think we, I think it's fair to say those, those wins against Celtic obviously decide where the title's going, but getting into that New Year game, it's... It's a weird one because it's there's injuries. There's injuries. There's not as many injuries as the next one, but there's still that thing of this Celtic team are growing. This Celtic team can potentially kind of halt this a wee bit. How big is that New Year's game? It's massive. Uh, it's absolutely massive um, because we talk a lot about momentum, but this is this kills Celtic's momentum. Still get it. T- it takes a relief from them. That's what it does. That's that's a big thing about it. Talk about mentally. I mean, the first game, you know, the Gascoigne and golf goals, obviously before Gascoigne scores, I think it's John Hughes that hits a bar seconds before. So it's these small margins. Yeah. And that's playing in Celtic's heads. This one, I mean, famous for the first goal we scored is obviously the Alberts free kick. And it's probably still my favourite free kick. But it's, people were, it's, it's incredible. People yes. are just sitting going, is he going to hit it from there? Is he going to? And it, the <laughs> fact that it goes in the side netting, um, I mean, I remember going home and going, I didn't see highlights of that. Just could not have been real. You'd never seen somebody hit a ball with that clearly from that distance, from that angle. Uh, it was remarkable. And then, yeah, we've got injuries. We're struggling. Walter Smith goes to his bench. He brings on Eric Bo Anderson, who, you know, hadn't really impressed. And he gets two goals and two really, really composed finishes. And, and what you see it. Walter Smith's celebration, the way he runs right down the track side, tells yeah. you everything you need to know about the importance of that game and how important he felt because any kind of sprung the other way and Celtic just gained so much belief they're already high in confidence and, and who knows, but here they are. When it, just when they think that they've got a chance, they get stuffed and they, they get stuffed by a guy that's come off the bench um, and again, they're probably going to think, what do I have to do? Yeah. Like we talked about Walter Smith in Champions I think that's League. absolutely, yeah. 
Tommy Burns must be sitting, you know, at that point going, I don't know how I can beat this Rangers team because I've tried all different ways and they've won all different ways. We won the first game with, you know, two very good team goals, one from the set play from Goff and then the ball in from the wide area from Alberts for Gasco to hit it. The Loudwick won away. That scene is kind of Celtic's night. Brian O'Neill slips and he kind of runs in. And again, I think Loudwick played up front that night. So mm-hmm. backs against the wall. So we beat them that way. And then here we come to the New Year game, just when they can smell a wee bit of blood, we up the ante once again uh, and just managed to get two late goals to get the job done. Yeah. And then the fourth one, I mean, the the, the injury the injury list in this is unbelievable. I mean, but also, I mean, it shows you just the genius of Walter Smith and Archie Knox, because he's, he's the one that comes up with the Andy Dibble thing. That thing, as you say, of the Celtic have it in their mind, bringing back Mark Haley. What does that do for? What does that do for that mindset? That's it's because Haley's in Haley's in Celtic's head, and they know that Rangers know that. Go and watch your goal back and tell me that Mark Haley's not in the Celtic player's head because yeah. I, I don't think he touches the ball. If it does, I was going to say he's not quite got that long hair. It's maybe off the glance at the, the top of his balding head, but. Um, <laughs> It certainly has an impact without touching the ball because the Celtic defenders are in fear of him, they're attracted to him, and they're taken away by him. Mm. All in one, basically just a long ball up the pitch, and that allows the space for Loudrop and Durant to, to just exploit, really, and that's what creates the goal. The Andy Dibble thing, I think, after Archie Knox and Walter Smith were looking, I mean, this was a, a big concern. He hadn't played very well in training for us, um, but he was a player... And I think when you bring in a player to play in this type of game, the pressure would have been huge. There would be no hiding from it. Bandy Dibble played very well for Luton, obviously, in the League Cup against Arsenal that had won. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a kind of famous game. So I think what they were thinking is somebody who's not going to be overawed by the occasion. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it wasn't. He couldn't kick, we knew that. Somebody was taking his goal kicks from and everything else. But he could save the ball. He, could, he had one of eight games and the occasion never got to him. Uh, the temperament in which is so important, the concentration levels of a goalkeeper, and I think that's why we went and got somebody that's been because he was so far out the picture at Man City, uh, it was kind of unreal. Um, it was just all, all about the mental aspects once again, and that you know that management team understanding what was needed. It wasn't some flashy foreign signing or something else you needed. It was guy short term loan, somebody just to get you over the line. That again, do what is necessary. Um, and Mark Gately, it was not even half the player he, he was beforehand. But it was just about that presence and boy, did his presence really just unsettle and unnerve that, that Celtic defence. And a game, it was very, very tight. But once again, we win it by the narrowest of margins yeah. because of individual brilliance. And, and I think that psychological warfare once again been overcome. Mm-hmm. And it's eight points and it's, it looks unassailable barring any major hiccups. There are a, there are a few hiccups. A home, home defeats to Kilmarnock and Motherwell, meaning that it goes to the penultimate game at Tanadice. Three points would mean that ninth consecutive title and the coveted record equalised. We know Loudrup scores a header and it's secured. I mean, the feeling of winning that league, what does that mean? Yeah, it'd be nice if we could have done it on Sunday. Um, <laughs> the game wasn't on in the, in the midweek against Dundee United, so I remember listening on the, on the radio. Um, but it was magical. And again, we had we had a good record to winning titles at Tannice, Walter mm-hmm. Smith. Um, and off the place he was very fond of but you felt that nerves were starting to creep in 
the pressure and nerves around this point, and and it must have been overwhelming. And again, we go in there without Richard Goff, who's been brought back at this point. I'm sorry, uh, Richard Goff, who's the captain at this point. He's out injured, so it's Alan McLaren that captains the team at this night. There's a wee bit of mix and match in the formation. Um, Players like Charlie Miller are are back in at the fold, so it's just about getting the job done. And to get the job done with, you know, a head up on Brian Loudrop from a a left-footed Charlie Miller cross, um, we'll certainly take that. And the celebrations (laughs) went long. Uh, and deservedly so, because what a relief it must have been for that group of players. Yeah. What a relief it must have been for Walter Smith. You know, Rangers man through and through, been there, seen it, been you know came came the course from from being under Graham. Um, and for our last three four seasons, it must have the pressure must have been weighing him down. And I, and I'm surprised he didn't go after this. I, I really am. I thought he might have walked away, but um, just because of everything involved. But yeah, it's it's a as much of an achievement it was. It must be a, a massive relief to him on a personal level. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's obviously the the main the main story from this whole period is getting that ninth. But going into ninety seven, ninety eight. Before we go into that, though, there's a couple of wee bits of off the field stuff, and this is the infamous time where David Murray gets a bit of investment from ENIC over forty million. Obviously, Tottenham owner now Joe Lewis, and he gives him the forty million. There's so much to go into with this that it's, I mean, I've covered it in the Chronicle, the the article piece we done on Murray last week, but that thing of Murray knows what he's doing here. It's it's just one of those things where Murray knows this is the, bring people in, sh- the succulent lamb thing, as we say, it's, let's just, well, the gift of gab, the gift of Ibrooks. Look, I've got the most modern stadium in the world. It's all me. I paid for it. That's exactly what happened here, isn't it? That's 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 what he was telling everybody. Murray was a salesman. That's what absolutely. That that's where his um, biggest talent always was. It was being able to sell something to the public or sell something to an individual, and to dupe the kind of you know, he obviously duped Dave King as well, but to dupe the kind of individual and Joe Lewis has got that kind of money shows you how much or, or how talented he must be at it. Um, you're right in what you're saying. There's always slight hand with Murray. At this point, I don't I don't think as a fan base we would have paid too much attention to it because we're just riding on the crest of a wave of everything positive. We've just secured nine titles. We're hearing things, you know, for, for the years we'd heard about Murray would wax lyrical. You know, I remember as, as long back as kind of four and five in a row. If you went to a stadium tour, Murray would have, you know, certain people would tell you that, oh, they're going to have um, a hotel to match, I think mm-hmm. it was the Toronto Blue Jays, which was really the focus at that point, and then it was going to be something else, then it was going to be this, so he was always good at selling that, delivering on it as we found out much later on was not the case, but we were still seeing uh, players coming in, players would continue to come in, um, so as a, as a supporter, you thought oh, it was his money, we didn't know that, you know, he didn't put a penny of his own money into it, we didn't know what was going on behind the scenes in these type of deals, and to be quite honest, I'm not sure too many of us cared at this point. No, yeah, I think there had been certain people, um, you know, certainly um, people who worked within the clubs that come out and said certain things, but they were quiet as people were just saying, "Ah, get you bitter about it." But nobody was sitting at this point questioning Murray. The papers or anything weren't brave enough to question Murray because no. he he was the king, he was the absolute king, um, and even across the city fair against McCann, I don't think. What was interesting in doing it. He he could, I think he could see what was happening. In, in all fairness to him, um, but nobody was going to 
um, shoot down David Murray. But you saw, you, we spoke about it last week as well. You see the difference in coverage and between yeah. Murray and McCann, and it's it's telling. I mean, how many times in that period, and I'm I'm just looking at it here. The bit, Murray was probably telling people, yeah, I managed to convince Sean Connery. He's a Rangers fan now. Do you know what I mean? Like that that was yep. that was probably Murray's yeah. European Cup. That was the, the point in having Sean Connery there in the first place was very much, you know, there's, there's footage of when Gascoigne was around and Connery's in the stadium. But yeah, the purpose in that was all showcasing it. It was all here we go, here's Sean Connery, look here's mm-hmm. my pal is. Not only do I bring in big money, not only do I sign players, not only do I rebuild the stadium, but I hang, I hang about with James Bond at the weekends. Yes. That was all about the David Murray persona. Um and every time you bought an end of season video, every season you got it, the first thing you seen, the last thing you seen was David Murray sitting at his desk selling you something for the next season. Yeah, and that's telling you about it. And, that's and that what was it was. It. That's what it was. And it's it's that thing of he's he's selling he, he is he's a salesman and a very good one. I think that's fair to say, but yeah. he's he's not got his own money in the club at this point. As much as he likes to get, as much as he likes to give that out, that yeah, it's all me. It's and as you say, a media that isn't challenging him. Rangers, this is the first nineteen ninety seven is the first year Rangers go into the into a loss making kind of initiative that kind of start goes on a bit of a period, shall we say? But up until then, it's it's nothing other than normal, and that's the thing. It's Rangers are Rangers are in the the black, and David Murray's the man that's. Writing checks himself. That's that's the persona, and I mean, taking forty million from a guy as shrewd as Joe Lewis. I mean, it's it's remarkable when you think about it now. Like for twenty five years bold. later, it's bold, it's bold it's and it's bold. brave, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. it's Murray in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, Murray was seen. He had obviously friends very high placed in RBS as well, which facilitated mm-hmm. his kind of behaviour. <coughs> I think at this point, you have to kind of see that the bank sees him as some sort of for a better word of it, a kind of probably a, a lesser a Scottish version of Donald Trump. Mm. But it, you know, he goes and invests in tons of things and then he proclaims his success. That's who they see him as. You know, he's had his hand in the media, he's had his hand in basketball teams. He's done this, he's done that. Reason why Rangers was perfect for David Murray is because it gave him the publicity he craved. Mm. It wasn't for anything else, but it gave him the publicity we, he craved. And at this point, we don't know it because we're not delving into the, the books. We're not looking at the balance sheets, we're not thinking we're making a loss, we're thinking this guy's generally putting his own money in and he's facilitating all, all our glory when in reality couldn't be followed from the truth. I think there's a big thing here that we, I think we should touch on. I know it kind of goes off the goes off the cliff in 99, but, but bringing Finlay in in 94, Donald, obviously Donald Finlay, very popular figure with the support, the, the infamous QC, defended the likes of Paul Ferris, he was the main man in that this unsuccessful Think Twice campaign against Scottish Devolution, but he was the vice chairman. I don't think Murray wanted Donald Finlay. I think Donald. I think Murray wanted the last two initials. I think he wanted the QC element. I think he wanted that respectability that bringing him in, bringing his name in, would mean a bit more respect. I don't think the two of them got on. No, they certainly seen, didn't. You can just debate if Donald Finlay should have left. Um, after his misdemeanor, and but I think, but I think if Murray like, I think if Murray yeah. likes him, I think he, he covers for him. I think he's Murray. Him. If Murray likes him, it perhaps doesn't even make the papers. Correct, you know, because it's at a Rangers event. Um, there's, there's a lot of things to take from it, 
But you're correct in what you say. The reason he brought in Donald Friendly QC is because he loved that status. He talked about earlier how he hung about with Sean Connery mm -hmm. just to have that kind of status symbol. He hung about with Donald Friendly to, to be in that circle, to make clients, to get gravitas, to just be, just fit, fit, feel his ego. This is mm -hmm. pure and simple as that. This is a man who, in business, was very successful in certain aspects, particularly the steel business, but was very, very ruthless. He managed his business completely different to how he managed his football club. Um, and I think that the football club was very much seen as a way he could extend his publicity and then it could obviously facilitate him into business and then his private life as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And I think that it's exactly that. I think the irony with the Finley thing is, is that come 20, come 20 years later, he's Finley's quizzing him about his Rangers career. And the doc, I mean, it's it's remarkable. I mean, it's that there's this whole thing, and it's all it's all interlinked. But I think it's that I don't think Finley takes that case twenty years later if Murray doesn't go to bat for him with the media. No, I think there's certainly a a spurned lover um, yes. situation about that there. Um, I don't think you can question with Don's allegiance lie. I know he's not perhaps, and some of the dealings people and supporters come at him. He's not probably perhaps. The greatest individual either no. in terms of his personality. Yeah. Um, but here are two very successful people who batted heads and kind of got on for the sake of Rangers for a bit and for the sake of themselves. And, and look, Donald Finley would have wanted to be on that board as much as David Murray. So both of them would have bit their tongue uh, and got on with it. But yeah, I think he would have expected a wee bit more back in. And he probably knew at the very early stage that Murray could have gave it to him and he, and he kind of threw him to the wolves. And, and that would be something, especially in the sectarian issues, that Murray would continue to do because what it did, it was smoke and mirrors to keep, uh, you know, the prime ice off his business deals mm -hmm. and off what was really happening as he was kind of fudging the books and, and saying, look, everything's great here, here, look at this, um, you know, here's a bad, really bad sectarianism instance, you know, deal with that, the front page of the paper, don't ever walk this way into my business dealings. Yeah, and we'll move into the summer of 1997 that, it was all about the 10 heading into 1997-1998, but the club pulled no punches in trying to secure that title, heading into that Italian market that, as you say, they'd kind of dipped into a bit with the Joachim Bjotland signing, but Sergio Perini, a European Cup winner, Lorenzo Amoruso, touted for Man United, Reno Gattuso, a young up-and-comer, and Marco Negri. Now, we'll touch on Marco Negri in a minute, but heading into that market, that's... That is moving to the future. That is sourcing the best players in that big league at that point. This was an absolute blockbuster bumper summer. It yeah. really was. It was one of the days where, you know, when you, the holidays, you picked up the paper, it was somewhere else. It was getting linked to another big name, another Sierra name. Then we knew Perini. Perini played against us uh, for Juventus, obviously. He played right back at Ibrox. Mm -hmm. Um and that was seen as a hefty price tag, but you were buying from Juventus, and it wasn't a guy that hadn't played for Juventus. Um, so that was seen as an absolute home run. Um, great signing. Um, Amaruso, yeah, we didn't we'd see him, uh, obviously, in the open day, um, but we didn't really see much after him until the following season, but that was still seen as a very big coup. Five million was an awful lot of money. Um, but again, it was just a, an example of what we did <coughs> and what we were prepared to spend at this point. And it was all about getting to the next title and nothing mm -hmm. else. It was just, let's see what the cost is. We're bringing Jonas Thern. And Jonas Thern was the one that excited me the most. 
you know, I'd seen him play for Benfica in the Champions League final, European Cup final, sorry. He played at the World Cups for, for Sweden. He was just a Rolls Royce of a player. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing was that the player that we got just wasn't that. You know, he, he was very much ready to retire yeah. until we, we took him on. Marco Negri, the, the sign of Marco Negri is basically filling that void that said Rosen Pills injuries left. Mm-hmm. And it's that Alan McCoy's replacement. The last couple of years, like Mark Cayley before him, McCoy's had just had a lot, a lot of niggling injuries. He still came through and came through in big games, but the ability to play in, I mean, I think the previous season, he started, the last game he started, was I want to say, October or September away, I think it was September away at Tannadice, and didn't start another game that season. Mm-hmm. So th- there's massive question marks over his durability at this stage. Um, and, and that even continues for the first half of this season. So again, it's looking for a replacement with probably was, you know, the, the bigger impact being in a year's time, um, you know, this would have been Alan McCoy's last season, no matter what. Yeah, I mean, and that spurge of players obviously means that Rangers have a, a so strong a squad that the media are reporting that they have two sides capable of winning the league. And the, the thought, the thought of that becoming visual was actually was was something I don't think anybody would see. But obviously, that that infamous Nike day, the Blues versus the Whites, that family day. I mean, if you want to see hubris at its early stage, then this is it. This is to us what the fish tank at Peter Risdale's office was to Leeds United. It really was. I mean, look, at my mum and dad's, I've still got the, the actual, I bought a, a Nike Rangers football from that day. You know, the wee man still plays with it. And it was a wonderful day out. Um, you know, I think three generations of my family went along. Great um, strips, especially the away strip then. You had great entertainment. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was a wonderful day, but looking back, what a horrible idea. The actual <laughs> fact that, they, I was going to say this, team didn't win the league, but the fact that these teams didn't win the league this mm-hmm. season uh, is very, very telling because the talent on show between the 22 players that started is absolutely frightening. It really is. But it is just a, 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 a too far. It's people that are now eating themselves. Um, and it's, it's, it's atrocious. You, you would never get it now, would you? No, you would, you would I mean, that, that's certainly a closed door to you now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, but... There's, there is one thing to take away from it was obviously the announcement of the new camp t- captain, obviously Richard Goff had chose to, to go to the MLS and Brian Loudrop was chosen as a new captain. Now, we know since that David Murray had tried to convince Loudrop to stay. Obviously, the move to Ajax looked lightly, but Murray had persuaded him to stay for the 10 and gave him the captaincy. But if you want to look at a man who does not want to be in the position he's in, then look at Brian Loudrop that day. He does not want to be have that armband on him. Yeah, he came last out the tunnel. He was announced as a huge fanfare, but it's a very uncomfortable looking Brian Lloyd up there. Yes. Just, because not only, I think he realises as well, he's got to take over the role of Richard Goff and Richard Goff leadership skills on and off the park really were unmatched. But you're now taking on the pressure of achieving this 10 and it's one where he's mentally checked out. He knows more than anybody. He, the staleness and I think the familiarity that the Scottish League brings, he's kind of had enough a wee bit. So he wants to go and test, you know, himself elsewhere. So it's very difficult. Um, but Murray again does that salesman on him, convinces him that it's the right decision, talks him around, um, and his heart's never really in it. I think when you look at Louder Ranger's career, nobody will ever talk about this season uh, in any great, um, you know, admiration or or really good light because. It's one you can tell. It's, it's always been the reason. It's the reason even last season when Conor Goals' contract run down and the big concern, people will highlight and say, look, you can't let a player's contract run down. 
look what happened to Lidov. It puts the fear of God still yeah. into Rangers supporters to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The start of that season, though, was all about one man, Mr Marco Negri. He was brought in to score goals, 23 goals in the first 10 league games. I mean, this guy was this guy was something unlike you've ever seen before. Just the, the manner of the goals, the the weird way he wouldn't celebrate as well. It was just a bit... He would sense, hey, that that's what he does. And he tend to done it as good as you'll ever see. Yeah. Um, his first two games, I mean, he scored two against Hearts, and then obviously they came home against Dundee United. You're just thinking, who is this guy? Yeah. And we talked about having an Alan McCoy's replacement. This was it. It was kind of at this stage, move over Alan McCoy's. This guy's come in. Where's, where's he been hiding? Why, why has he been hiding in, you know, Perugia for, for so long? Look how he can finish. He doesn't even care when he scores. He, he doesn't even, you know, take care of his hair, he's just, he's got the beard, he's just rugged, he, all he does is just pop up, score two goals, looks as if he, he smokes a fag on the way home, and it's all done and dusted, he, he was unstoppable, um, <coughs> he didn't have the pleasure of obviously clips to go and look at before, so the first look at we got him was at night day, I think I remember him trying overhead kick, I think he scored as well, it looked kind of impressive, but his first league games it was just Negri, negri, negri. He was like one of the players when you you play championship manager back in the championship manager two, and you buy one of the unknown players, um, you know, the Sebastians or something like that. It comes in your team and ends up scoring like 30, 40 goals a season. He, he just seemed as if he would be breaking all records. Um, and then to get the goal, you know, to, to the, the Celtic game, he gets the only goal uh, as well. He's just, he's on such a run. He's just such a force. Um, and they're all types of finishings or lobs or, you know, the chaps, is, he's got everything in his armory. Um, and he's not, not even how he's, he's a complete poacher. He wasn't a modern day striker, but what he was good at was very adept at finding space. Just taking that wee, wee kind of drift off, um, the defender creates a wee half yard and he knew every type of finish to use. And well, it had to be power, placement, or anything at all. He was a man to finish it. And um, yeah, we, we were all wondering where the hell did we, we scout him from? Mm, I know. And it's, it's, People talk about debut seasons and I, this Negri and Moles are the two they, they touch on, but you, you can understand why he's he's unbelievable record at the start of the season. We'll touch on what happens after that. But Europe again, these are the two, I think the two ultimate decisions that result in the, the change we see at the end of this season. Gothenburg, we, we know the history of Gothenburg, but a 4-1 exit in the Champions League, this is it. Um, Gothenburg was painful because... You know, Gothenburg had a famous tactic the night before that, you know, those are pop concerts. And I, I want to remember Michael Jackson, I'm sure, that played a pop concert um, a couple of nights before, so the pitch was awful. Mm-hmm. And we went in, and the first half was a really scrappy game. We did play bad, but this is exactly what it was saying earlier when we were talking about how we, we, we would defend in what was my second spell. We would just take what teams give you, take it back for a nil-nil, go back to Ibrox and, and, and you know, do a number on them. We got a half time, no, no, very much in the game, and then it comes down to the manner of goals that we lose to lose two no, uh, sorry, three no to them in the first leg. As the game gets away from us so quickly, and you know, I think the first goal scored by the same man that scored against uh, Dundee United and the got final ten years earlier, um, Pedersen, thirty five now, yeah. uh, and even then we still go chasing the game. We don't decide to to shut up shop, and it's only a couple of minutes later we lose another. Really sloppy goal, takes deflection, Gorham gets a hand, but he can't keep it out. And then after that, you still don't decide to, to get a change. And a 3 0, it was like, what? Uh, it was unbelievable. Hey, look, Gothenburg, as I mentioned, they were, they have been in the Champions League, they had a wee bit of pedigree, 
but not to go there and get beat three hills. It's kind of mm. weird stadium. It was a, a kind of open stadium, running track around it, if I remember. It certainly had wide gaps. Um, what was that? You know, the, the squad that we had just spent the money on that they were talking about, they weren't meant to go there and get turned over. I mean, Jonas Thern in the middle of the park, completely overrunning. He'd been in the press days before, picking up our chances, everything else. And it all just fell apart. And by the time um, the game came at Ibrox and Charlie Marsco, I mean, I think there would have been a huge amount of urgency in the, the game at Ibrox. And you can imagine that. But with 3 0 down away, you know, mm. for the first leg, it's an insurmountable to And then that kind of leads on to the kind of year for Cup and the Strasbourg game. And for me, the night at home at Strasbourg, where we get defeated 2 1, and it's a daily that scored. Um, you know, that was the straw that broke the camera's back because after the game, um, people were just throwing, and some people threw season tickets. There was scars thrown at the side of the pitch. There was a real anger. Mm. Um, it was a, a real vent of frustration. It was a it was a toxic atmosphere. And, you know, it pains me to say, but, you know, myself included, most of the frustration was directed at Walter Smith. Mm. We were expecting there. We'd, we'd won the nine. We'd assembled the squad. We'd went and spent the big money. We'd been told all summer that these players coming with the, the best of the best. And here we are, getting overturned by a mediocre French side, and a guy that we got to play for hips, more or less, and we get pumped to the Champions League, embarrassed by a Swedish team that went on to do really nothing. Um, it, it was all a bit embarrassing. <coughs> and obviously the, these, these disappointments in Europe, Smith did confirm in the years before his passing that, 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 that would, they did result in the... He's kind of dismissal, but it was it was announced that he would be going at the end of the season in October. And how does that impact that season? Because obviously the focus is getting the ten, and we know that, and we we see that there's it goes to the absolute peak of that season. But you're announcing in October that this is a, this is the time to break this team up. That's the team that had been allowed to grow together and the culture to get out of control by this point. The, I mean, Goff comes back basically just to have some presence in the dressing room. We know the, the situation with Gaza's problems and it's just out of control. Like, what's, But surely that announcement in October has an impact on what happens there. I think so, but I think why the announcement was done was against David Murray. It mm-hmm. was to stop, to, to give something to the fans who... who you know, as I said, we're very angry at this point. So mm-hmm. it's like, I'll throw Walter Smith to the wolves so they won't start looking upwards. At the, the anger won't then, you know, go from Walter Smith to me. So I'll, I'll just give Walter Smith out. He's going to go. And I think it had an effect on the team. You mentioned the discipline. Or the uh, discipline that kind of crept in. If you go and look at, I mean, we, we record this, it's obviously, you know, Andy Goro's not long past, but go and look at him play against uh, Gothenburg in that, that first leg away. And yes, he's carrying a wee bit of weight, but compare that to towards the end of the season and his night and day as a guy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, final seasons, not looked after himself, not done himself any justice. You'll look at the, you know, the contributions of a big sign like Amaruso, and none. He, he hardly plays. Then he gets set off with a couple of games to go up to Todry that really costs it. It's on the back of, you know, after winning the old firm games. But I think in the change room, the, the players just had checked out. Um what they had and you know the training left the tracks in terms of how they were living their lives off it and you're right in saying why Richard Goff was brought in Richard Goff was brought in is like Walter Smith is trying to keep control of the class mm-hmm. uh, Richard Goff leaves he's very much that, that voice in that changing room when he's not there and it becomes like Brian Loudrop's like a supply teacher mm-hmm. they just run amok Richard Goff's from back in and tries to steady ship and look at all fairness 
it's a season where we should Celtic were, were trying to give us the title. You know, they, they stumbled, they were feeling the pressure, but we just couldn't help ourselves. We just couldn't get ourselves together for long enough. And I, and I think that's just a culmination of, of the things that we saw a couple of years in the making. It was just the standards weren't quite there. And I don't think the Walter Smith that returned in the second spell would have been as lenient and managed these players the same way that he's managed them in the first spell. But the, the thing was, because this group of players had achieved so much, they were always going to get it. But by this point, the European results um, had really started to have a, a massive effect on how the fan base felt about the group of players um, and I think how, how they felt about the manager. Yeah. And obviously that journey to, to the team has proven difficult, as you say. It was just... Rangers and Celtic were handing each other their initiative every week and it's, it leads to that final Old Firm game at, at Ibrooks. It's very nicely poised. Rangers, the Rangers are three points behind Celtic going into that match, but that goal from Joris turn and obviously Albert seals a massive 2-0 victory and Rangers go top and goal difference and it, it looks to be a huge chance with four games left to play. Do you, and that, that Celtic that Celtic game and that the 2-0 win, is that the realisation that no matter how weird this season is, we still have the upper hand mentally on Celtic? Yes, and as you left Ibrox that day, there was no question in anybody's mind that that was it done. We were going to go and comfortably win the league. Now, we'd beat them the week before in the Scottish Cup at Parkhead um, with them from back to Ibrox. Jonas Thern gets that the Marco goal then. Albert scores almost a copy of his goal the week before. I think he puts it in a different corner, but um, it's just players who have... Albert has fast became a player that has got in Celtic's head like Mark Cately before him. Yeah. They had the fear of God and you see that when <coughs> back it. You know, the two goals, they're very similar, but these players just backing off. They don't know whether to gauge them because he can go by you. He's got the pace and the power to do so and they don't know whether to step back and try and get a block in because he's got that shot in. So um, at that point, everything looks rosy. And I say that the next game after that, that midweek trip up to Padre, Amari Sword came back, obviously, in that Scottish Cup game against Celtic, and he, like, he took a free kick as well. It was um, just over, I was well saved. But, you know, the signs were promising, but his performance, he gets red cards, and the team, we, we just can't, can't get going. And that, that game gives Celtic the belief. We then go and get a comfortable win over a decent heart side, and you think it's going to be done, and that, then it kind of boils down to that game against Kamarika Ibrooks. And for me, that's just a game where there was too many and so many players and staff just playing their cage and emotions were always going to be high. You know, so many people, no matter what happened in the final two games, it was going to be so many's last game at Ibrooks. And that day we played the occasion rather than the game and we paid the price, really. Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate, that commander defeat. And Celtic obviously take the take the advantage of that and win the title in a, the final day to stop that historic 10 in a row. The best word to describe it, just a complete body blow. Yeah, I mean, I had, I was at the beanbag for the Dundee United game. And I still remember coming home and, and being just kind of shell-shocked. Shell I think that's probably the best word. And I went out the back and just started kicking the ball against you know, the wall. I, I'd never seen Rangers really, or in my memory, couldn't really remember Rangers not winning the league. So it was a complete 360. And for the kind of position of strength that we had, I said the summer of spending we had, everything it, it was seen as very much a formality. Um, but it unraveled and unraveled pretty quickly. And I think by that point, it was clear that we, all parties had to go in a kind of different direction and, and a change was, was really much needed. Yeah. The final game of this historic team takes place in that Scottish Cup final 
against Hearts, and I mean we can, we we need we need to give Hearts the respect. I mean they were on the way up at this point. Jim Jeffries had got them playing really well. They fancied their chances. Colin Cameron and Stefan Adam give Hearts a two 0 lead, and McCoy just doing what McCoy does scores that goal, but it's it's not enough. And that swan song that promised to be the the ultimate way for this miraculous team to go out just didn't happen and a trophy of the season of the the only trophy of the season of the smart the first smart tenure i mean it's i mean it, as it's just it's a weird end to this brilliant story as it's a team that that mental strength has evaporated mm-hmm. it's a team that are mentally exhausted and i think that's a bit mentally exhausted and physically exhausted because of they, they, they haven't put themselves in the best position to win. Ali McCoist had came back in, you know, probably the last six to eight weeks. Dragged Rangers to that. Yeah, yeah. almost single-handedly dragged yes. us to the title and almost single-handedly comes on in this game, gets a goal back, should have had a penalty, mm-hmm. should have went to the World Cup. But again, it's individual performances. Andy Gorham's not quite what he was. Um, you see that in the goals. Amaruso lets it run for the goal mm. and it's just shocking defending all round. And the belief wasn't there. Unlike that Hearts game that we talked about, you know, the League Cup a few years ago, where we could rely on somebody, we didn't have a gas anymore, so we didn't have that spark. Gas wasn't that spark at that time either. So, you know, he hadn't been performing um, for us at that kind of level. So th- there's no doubt saying, or, or no point, I don't think, saying, well, maybe he could have provided it. We just didn't have it. It just looked like a team that was absolutely shattered. Um, and it was a team that probably, with the, 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 you know... The, they made their own downfall by, by very much of it, I said. Um, that's how I describe it. And that, that's certainly how it looked, you know. Obviously, it, the game was played at Parkhead as well. It's just another disappointment. But to end the season of all seasons, the season that promised so much, was absolutely nothing. Um, it's scandalous, considering that talent. And even when we did freshen up, I think the pressures were, were massive. Um, and for so many players, what we did is we just asked too many to go the well too many times. And there's too many players that, at the end of the day, you know, mentally and physically, they just weren't capable of it anymore. Mm-hmm. Closing the show, the the overall legacy of this team, that that first spell of Walter, that nine in a row team, what's the what's the definitive statement for that team? I, I think mental toughness. I think how how you define it is it's a nine in a row team. It's mm-hmm. not the ten in a row team. Um, and and I think only in the context of time can we now fully appreciate it. I think because of the success, if we hadn't won the league the next, for the next couple of years, then I think there would be a bigger reluctance to do so. But they achieved what they set out to achieve in nine titles, especially in, in days where competition was fierce uh, in the early stages, is something to be very much celebrated, considering when Graham came in, we hadn't won the league nine years and to go then you know win what um, nine out of or sorry one about 13 out of 15 titles it's pretty impressive so I think you have to view it as a whole not just the nine in a row that, that's the most fondest parts but that journey from Gray and Soonest to Walter Smith leaving, uh, leaving the first time th- that's a really good and a very successful time and it's a time that gave a, a ton of memories and it's a time that meant that when we went to Parkhead we generally won even the years when we won nothing we still we, we changed that narrative and we became the dominant force. So that's that team's legacy. Um, the legacy is always going to be nine in a row and what they achieved in the five in a row season will always be the one that we held it up. 
but the, the disappointments will always be the European performances afterwards mm-hmm. and even before. Yeah, absolutely. Murray's legacy at this point is, as you say, he's not. It's not at the stage yet where we're beginning to question what's going on, but that he is still the king of Scotland. He is in in the eyes of football. He's he's running the media. He's he can do no wrong at this point still. Even and he's about to go. He's about to take part in a project that ultimately kind of results in what happens. But at this point, he's still the dynamic chairman. Uh, he's unchanged, probably unchanged uh, in the viewpoint of the fan base as well. I was seen as more. But I, th- I think you've seen as bad management, and, and, and I say that now with a wee bit of shame. But I think as supporters, the general consensus was <coughs> that with the, the funds that we had, we could have spent better in some areas. But perhaps we, we should have done better with, with the players that we have, um, and, and no blame was really attached to him. He was very much at the Teflon Don stage for his career at this point, um, and nobody was throwing any darts at him. There was nothing getting flagged up that uh, supporters would... I mean, look, most of us consumed that. Uh, you know, I think I'd, every Rangers news was younger, every week you would go and buy it. So what you were consuming was in-house media. Mm-hmm. But you just thought that was great, but it was very glossy, very fabricated. That would tell you transfer stories, but they were things that were being drip-fed to you. But at that point, you didn't really question it, you didn't really take it on. The fanzine culture was there, but it was more... You read that for... You know, an hour or so before the game was running ground daily, and there was always rumours about all the players and what players had been up to. There, there was some murmurings, but not enough to to really get anybody um, going against them or, or or trying to overthrow him. Because to be quite honest, he'd have been shot down at that stage. Yeah, absolutely. And he's about to embark in this project next week on the Rangers journey. We will take a look at what happens when David Murray goes to the continent. He brings in a foreign manager and Dick Advocat and the. The spending that occurs that ultimately results in hubris, overconfidence, dominance and collapse. This week on the Rangers Journey, I want to thank Stephen Harrigan for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure to talk about the end of nine in a row. Wonderful. Some very happy memories and some uh, not so great, but wonderful times all the same. Pleasure for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to everyone who's tuned in. Please join us for the next series of the Rangers Journey.